This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. Reading from Matthew 15, 1 through 20. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that came out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Well, good morning again. I'm Pastor Brad. I guess I already introduced myself. And uh, great to see you here. Thanks for, for uh, coming today. Uh, some of you are probably waiting for me to tell you some harrowing story of our last week of uh, hiking on the Resurrection Pass Trail. Um, I know it's only 38.5 miles, but we did an additional little hike up the uh, Russian River. It was about a five-mile hike, so we went over 40 miles Seven of us, four pastors, three sons, and uh, it was the most beautiful um, experience of our lives. However, if you see me today during the sermon at any time doing this, it's just because I'm still trying to, to, uh, you know, when you do that for seven days, uh, it just, uh, we saw no animals except for uh, flies and mosquitoes. Now, do you all remember... uh, a month or two ago, maybe it was longer, I told the story about hiking and losing the map. You remember that story I told you? 
I just want a friend of mine who's here today to uh, stand because he's the guy that lost the map. Uh, uh, that's Jan DeWitt. He's a covenant pastor. He serves a church in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And even though he lost the map a few years ago, we still hike together. But somebody else carried the map. Great to have you here. Well, we are in a sermon series uh, right now this summer that we're calling Wild, the Unpredictable Jesus. And if you've been here at all this summer, you've already got a taste about what this wild Jesus is like. What I'm trying to suggest to you over the course of the summer is that the, this Jesus, this wild Jesus, is, is, uh, is introducing the, the concept of the kingdom in a way that people didn't expect. You see, most of the religious leaders of Jesus' time walked around and they did and said certain things that were fairly routine, fairly predictable, and fairly expected. But Jesus came along and he turned that all upside down on its head. And so we have in the Gospels, I think more than anything else, in these encounters that Jesus has with people, um, uh, illustrations of the way the kingdom is very different than we think. And so today, as we continue to uh, look at this wild Jesus, what I want to look at is how Jesus responds to religious people. Or as I'm calling it, and I think it's in your, your worship guide, Jesus and church people, right? Because the, the religious people of Jesus' day are the church people of our day. Now, I don't want... Uh, you to think that I'm down on church people. I like church people. I spend much of my life hanging around church people. But church people sometimes get it wrong. And so if you're here today and you, you uh, have bur- been burned by the church and you're, you're giving it one last uh, check out before you check out, um, I want you to hear me say to you that, uh, that we don't get it right all the time. And and we see that in this text that we read a moment ago. You see, church people, like anybody else, religious people, desire to follow Jesus. And they desire to live their lives in, a, in such a way that it expresses their core beliefs, right? That's, that's what church people do. But sometimes... Church people get so wrapped up in that the outward expression of what that might look like that we forget to pay attention to the very core issues of our faith. And I'm not going to take a show of hands here this morning and embarrass anybody, but I will tell you, I will be the first one to say I've done that many times. I've got more wrapped up in the way my faith is expressed outside than I have paid attention to the internal core of what it is that that makes my faith vital and alive. Sometimes church people become more concerned about the sins of others than, and and when they do, they forget about the, the wideness of God's mercy. Both that's already been expressed for us, but also for people that don't got it right. Jesus has something to say to us about church people, being religious, about what's pure and what's not pure. And I hope you're listening today. Will you pray with me as we ask God to enable us to hear what he has to say to us? God, 
whether we are dyed-in-the-wool church people or people that are sitting on the fringe looking for a reason to get out. If we find ourselves here today, please open our ears, open our hearts, enable us to see the true character of your kingdom, which reflects perhaps something very different than we presently understand. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Now, it may be surprising for you to hear me say to you, uh, but of all the encounters that Jesus has with people in the Gospels, uh, he rarely becomes angry with sinners. In fact, I I love this quote because this is what this quote says. behind me describes Richard Rohr is a Catholic spiritual writer and he says it is really shocking how little Jesus is shocked by human failure and sin in fact he never appears that he is upset at sinners at all he is only and consistently upset at people who do not think that they are sinners in other words religious folks Jesus desired for sinners to encounter God, a God who loved them and forgave them rather than a God who was, who was waiting to catch them in their sin so that he could punish them or, or at the very least hold them off at arm's length. This is not the kind of God that Jesus wanted sinners to know. And I think part of the wild character of Jesus' ministry was that his focus was not necessarily on the institutional religious Uh, institutions, the religious institutions of the day, but his focus was on those who, who for whatever reason found themselves on the outside of the circle looking in. The sinners, the ashamed, the people whose lives were not perfect. When I was a kid, we used to play this silly game and I don't even know if it had a name. Maybe you played it too and you can tell me. But you, you had a bunch of kids who would uh, hold hands. And then there would be a couple kids outside the circle. And then the teacher or the gym teacher would say, go or blow the whistle. And it was the job of the people on the outside of the circle to break in to the inside of the circle. Did, you, did anybody ever play that game? Okay. That, that's what it feels like sometimes when church people forget about the fact that there's people who Jesus loves that are outside of the circle. It's way too hard sometimes to break in. I love this quote, as I said to you a moment ago, because it describes a, a picture of Jesus. Where Jesus doesn't have an issue with sinners as much as he has an issue with those who don't think that they are sinners. Right? As we look at Jesus and his relationship with church people, those who don't think that their sin is as bad as somebody else, we must keep in mind that the boundaries of God's kingdom may in fact include some people that we could never imagine within the reach of God's mercy. And I, and I, you know, and I could stand up here and start listing off so, you know, all kinds of notorious people who everybody believes in their heart is because of what they've done, have gone to hell and the doors have been locked and they'll never be seen again. I wouldn't be too quick about that. Because if I understand the character of God, there are going to be some folks who we think shouldn't be inside the circle who are. And that's what this text that uh, we have read 
this morning is really wrestling with. And so as we look at this wild Jesus and and how he interacts with these religious people in this text, I want for this sermon to be an encouragement to those of you who may be here this morning believing that there is no way, absolutely no way, that God could possibly have a place for you in his kingdom. Like right now, even as I've been talking for the last five minutes, you're running through the list of all of the sins and the failures and the letdowns that you've done in your life. And you're going, there's no way. Not so fast. This sermon is for those of us who have found ourselves on the outside at one point or another looking in. That's what this sermon is for. And I want you to know that Jesus is more interested in you than you think. Please hear this good news today that no matter how far you may have wandered, no matter how far you may feel out of the center of things, Jesus is not far away. Jesus is not far away. Well, in this passage, then, that was read for us a moment ago, we get a picture of the extent to which the religious people, the church people of Jesus' day, go to try to catch Jesus doing something that he shouldn't be doing. So, in the text, it it tells us that these religious leaders came from Jerusalem, and they went all the way out, probably into the northern reaches of Palestine, where Jesus spent most of his time in ministry to catch Jesus doing something wrong. Right? That's what church people do. I, I've known them. I've, I've had parishioners in my churches who would call up on a certain afternoon in the day of the week to see if I answered the phone because if I didn't, that gave them ammunition to say that I wasn't doing my job. Now, that hasn't happened here, but... <laughs> But if I take up fishing, it might. No, just kidding. In this case, we're told that these religious people in these opening verses traveled from Jerusalem and they wanted to confront Jesus and his disciples about breaking particular traditions related to cleanliness and ritual purity. Another way to describe this is these uh, religious people in the story had an obsession with tradition and and religious purity. They had an our way or the highway approach to their religious practice. You you know what I mean? I mean, you've, you've, you've known people like this. When they express an opinion about something, you, you don't have the feeling that there's any room for dialogue or, or conversation or the possibility that they might be wrong. It's their way or the highway. That's it. And sometimes that's what happens to religious folks when they become so, so strictly committed to whatever way or practice it is that they're trying to advocate for. And this is what Jesus had to deal with when he was, when he was encountering people of his day all the time. Now, now don't misunderstand me. These, these religious folks, they had good intentions. They loved God every bit as much as Jesus did. They desired to live lives that, that reflected their faith in some way in an outward expression so that, so that 
Their piety could be visible to those around them. The problem was this. They focused on the tradition rather than on their relationship with a holy God. And it's so easy to make that move. Their obsession with with keeping all the rules of their religious practice and making sure others did the same made them into into the religious practice police of their day. They were devoted to God. They desired to express their devotion in a practical and visible way, but they lost the heart and the soul of their faith. Now, this is not just a risk for religious people in Jesus' day. This is a risk for church people in our day, if we are not careful. The challenge that the kingdom poses to to religious people then and now is is not to lose sight of the main things that Jesus and the kingdom stands for that's the challenge i have met a few sinners in my life and i'm often surprised by the level of guilt and anger and sometimes perplexity that sinners carry with them wherever they go. And you've met these people. You know these people. Perhaps you may be one of these people. And and this guilt and this anger and this perplexity often comes out when in the course of a very casual conversation, they discover that I'm a pastor. That's one of the reasons why when I'm on a plane, I try not to reveal that I'm a pastor because you're trapped for however many hours. But I remember once I was golfing by myself. I don't do that often. Um, and so I, I joined up with a couple of old codgers who obviously knew each other. They've been golfing for years together. And we started out at the first tee. And these two old guys got up there and they, you know, took a whack at the, at the ball and sprayed it this way. And then the next guy took a whack and sprayed it that way. And, and, and every time they hit the ball, they were cussing up a blue streak. Like, uh, you know, it, it, would, it would even embarrass a sailor, I think. And uh, somewhere, this is kind of golfing etiquette. You, those of you who golf, you know this. But somewhere around the third or fourth hole... You always kind of turn to the strange golfer that's part of your threesome or foursome and you say, so, what do you do for a living? <laughs> and I paused for a moment and I smiled and I said, well, I'm a pastor. And I could literally see the color <laughs> drain from his face as he was thinking of everything that he had said over the first four holes of that course. It was just amazing. And I, and I looked at him and I said, hey, look. He said this to me first. He says, he says uh, Father, I'm really sorry. <laughs> See, he was a good Roman Catholic. And I, I said to him, you know... Um, don't worry about it. It's okay. But for the rest of that round of golf, they didn't cuss or swear once more. And, I, and when, we, when we said goodbye, I sort of apologized to him. And I said, hey, I'm sorry I ruined your round of golf. 
<laughs> well, the problem that Jesus is addressing in this text is really uh, the issue of hypocrisy. It's a familiar word to most of us. The, the uh, dictionary defines it like this. Uh, do, you, do we have that slide? Is, is it coming up? Am I jumping ahead of myself? I probably am. Okay, we'll get there. But, the, but uh, hypocrisy, of course, is, is the condition where what we say with our mouth and how we act when we're in a certain crowd of people, when we get into a different crowd or in a different place, we don't look like the same person. See, not only is the kingdom of God and Jesus in this passage more interested in living faith, a faith where tradition has not fallen into this false sense of traditionalism, evidence of the kingdom of God is also seen as a consistency, a regularity between one's internal beliefs and outward expression of their faith. Those who claim allegiance to the king cannot just smile and nod and do what they want. We can't gloat in our sin, in other words. See, so here, we're, here we have in this text set up for us this very interesting balance. On the one hand, the, the kingdom of God and Jesus is saying, you know what, the wideness of God's mercy might be wider than you think. Welcome the sinners. And on the other hand, the kingdom of God is a place where the people who claim to be part of the kingdom look different than they were before they allowed God's kingdom to to penetrate their hearts. You've probably heard some of your unchurched friends say something like this. And by the way, let me say this. I hope you have unchurched friends. If you um, spend so much time in and around church people, please find an unchurched friend because I, I find them most refreshing and, and more importantly than that, I find that they give me a perspective about myself and about the world that I wouldn't get otherwise. But you've probably heard your non-church friends say something like this. I don't have any problems with Jesus. I don't like the church because it's filled with a bunch of hypocrites, right? You hear, I've heard that. And when someone says that to me, I often respond sort of sheepishly, yes, you're right. That's true, and I'm just thankful that there's a place for somebody as imperfect as me in the church. When Jesus confronts the religious leaders about their hypocrisy, he's pointing out the fact that they have misplaced their focus on matters that are secondary to life in God's kingdom. That's what Jesus is suggesting. They've spent all of their time, if you will, watering the dead patch of grass while ignoring the rest of the lawn. That, that's what hypocrites do. And then Jesus quotes Isaiah in this text, and it goes like this. People honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are rules taught by men. And then Jesus goes on to say something that seems a little odd to me. He begins to riff on, on what one puts in their mouth isn't the problem and it isn't what makes them unclean. Did you, did you catch that a minute or so ago? You see, it's already what's, what's corrupted on the inside that is the real risk for us becoming hypocrites. 
This past week, as I mentioned a moment ago, we traveled 40 miles on the Resurrection Pass Trail. And one of the things that hikers these days are very careful about is making sure that they get clean water. And so, you know, we had four or five water filter systems and and uh, stary pens and, you know, what have you. Because anywhere on that trail, we do not want to catch, you know, some infectious disease that's going to make us really sick at best or worse, potentially kill us. We spend a lot of time trying to make sure that the water we ingest is pure enough so we don't don't get sick. What Jesus is saying in this text is, it's not about what you ingest. It's not about how many times you wash your hands. But it's about the condition of the heart that is the basis of where our sin ultimately comes from. And the disciples, in their typical fashion, they come to Jesus after this short exchange with, with these religious folks, and they ask Jesus to explain to them, you know, what, what are you talking about? I, I'm always amazed at these disciples because they've been traveling with Jesus for months, if not years, and they still don't get it. And Jesus responds by pointing out to them that, that, that the hypocrisy that he's talking about is when people spend more time dealing with their outward appearance than they do with the matters of their heart. I mean, you can dress and look as nice and scrub your face and comb your hair and look as clean and Christian as you possibly can. But if your heart is a mess... doesn't much matter. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, points out that um, the real challenge of this passage comes to all of us, especially if we think of ourselves as followers of Jesus. We may not observe the purity codes of ancient Israel, he says, but are our hearts, our thoughts, and our intentions, and the casual words that we utter telling us that our own purity is less than complete? If so, he says, what are we going to do about it? That's a good question. What are we going to do about it? What are we doing about the incongruity between what we confess with our lips and what is true about us in our hearts? What are we going to do about it? Sure, we may be able to fool people around us. We may even be able to fool our spouse some of the time, not all the time. But the heart of the gospel is not about this external set of rules that we must fastidiously, that's a great word, isn't it? Fastidiously? Fastidiously keep in order to be loved and receive the mercy of God. The heart of the gospel is about being invited into a relationship with the God of the universe who knows us more than we know ourselves. And this God loves us anyway. So here's the $64,000 question. How do we avoid becoming the kind of religious people that Jesus confronts in this passage? How do we avoid the kind of hypocrisy that misrepresents the kingdom and is ultimately destructive to our faith? How do we begin to live into this freedom of our faith without guilt? Or manipulation? How, how do we recover our sense of excitement for 
Our faith, which has become dull and distant from God, because we've been trying so hard to to wash the outside of the cup. Let me offer you a couple of quick suggestions. If you want to take a note or two here, this would be a good place to do that. Remind yourself often of the wideness of God's mercy for you. It's really hard to be pharisaical towards others when we're always thinking about how forgiving and how wide God's mercy has been extended to us. It's really hard. So that's my first uh, piece of advice. Second, refrain from drawing boundaries that separate saints and sinners. It's, it, it's a false dichotomy. There's no such thing as a person who is always an all-saint And there's no such thing as a person who's always an all-sinner. Each and every one of us, to one degree or another, lives with those two combinations of characters inside of us. But it's the moment that we try to separate those and say, okay, this is saintly activity and this is sinning activity and I'm on the saintly side right now and, you know, she's on the sinning side. It, It doesn't work very well. So refrain from drawing boundaries that separate saints and sinners. And then last... Give others the same latitude for failure that you would like them to offer to you. That's almost the hardest of these. Because I uh, must confess that it's a lot easier for me to be gracious and gentle and forgiving to myself for my own failures than it is for me to be gracious and gentle and forgiving to my children or my wife or the fellow uh, member of my work team who has insulted me or done something to, to, to me. Give others the same latitude for failure that you would like them to offer you. Let me, let me end by saying to you, uh, those of you who have struggled to be acceptable to, to God your entire lives, my heart yearns for you to hear me when I say, you don't have to keep striving in order to be loved by God. You don't have to to cross all the T's and dot all the I's in order to make sure that you are found good enough. All you have to do is receive the mercy of God that God extends to each and every one of us no matter how near or how far we may feel from God at this very moment. God is for you, not against you. God loves you without reservation and regret. God sees you at your most vulnerable and sinful place. And he whispers to you, let me help you.
God invites us to this table as a visible expression of the wideness of his mercy, both saints and sinners, all of us.